Hey, look, it's me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm sending sign language to <laughs> to James on this side because he set the slide up for you guys to look at. I don't have it on my side, so I couldn't turn it off. Anyway, hey, it's Dijon Miller, and we're here with this week's episode of Kudin. And, uh, yeah, what a start. <laughs> Anyway, all right, we'll just add that right on top of the uh, elephant herding and success. How about that, huh? <laughs> anyway, uh, so <clears throat> if you were one of the folks that were in for this past weekend's training uh, with our annual fall camp, then you might have some kind of an inkling as to uh, what the subject might be about, uh, because one of the uh, one of the sessions, as a matter of fact, the last session that I covered uh, was taking a look at the theme for camp, which was blades, canes, and chains, and looking at those as symbolic uh, items, right, symbols that are on our uh, secret mandala, right, from the from the uh, Mikyo uh, mind science stuff, right. So anyway, <laughs> so we're going to jump into those. Um, uh, well, a couple of them, uh, I think two, right. But anyway, we'll take a look at those uh, for those who are who are interested and. Um, I don't know, maybe a few other things, uh, when I get back. The big question is this. How are self-defense and success-minded people like us, concerned citizens worried about protecting ourselves, our loved ones, and the things we care about from the monsters we know exist in the world? How do we train in a way that gives us the skills, knowledge, and understanding we need without becoming paranoid fighters or killers ourselves, and yet still allows us to be the hero protector the world needs us to be? That's the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Jeffrey Miller, and welcome to Kudan Radio, real training for real people in a real world. <laughs> Sorry, I don't even laugh this much when I'm drunk. Uh, not that I get drunk, but anyway, <laughs> that was just funny. Sorry, uh, if you signed in late, uh, we had a little snafu at the beginning. But anyway, all right, so we're here, right? Episode 182. Jesus Christ, we, James, we need to start planning for something for like episode 200, right? So. Uh, I'd be farther ahead if I didn't take a year off but, or a year and a half off, but hey, it is what it is, right? So um, anyway, thanks to everybody for uh, sticking around and and uh, engaging and, you know, just kind of supporting what we're doing. So uh, awesome. So regardless of whether you're live on uh, YouTube or Facebook or where the hell else am I, Twitter, uh, whatever, I, I cut out LinkedIn because I've got some other plans heading in that direction. Um, but or you're listening in on one of the uh, official podcast uh, directories, whether it's, I don't know, what, Google Play or Pandora, whatever, right? As a matter of fact, the the, uh, the timing should be coming up pretty soon, right? When we uh, got accepted at Pandora, um, they said there was a really good chance that uh, we could be accepted onto, uh, was it Sirius? Is it Sirius Radio? Yeah, awesome. Right? He's nodding in the background. You guys can't see him, right? I have him minimized so much that you can't even see it, right? So <laughs> anyway, so shit. Anyway, <laughs> um, so but anyway, uh, someone had uh, actually uh, sent in a question based on uh, something we had covered a couple of episodes ago, um, kind of, right? Uh, but this. This is something that comes in a lot. So I'm going to deal with this before we jump into our, our regular topic, right? Because I, I really do want to answer folks, uh, the questions that people send in. Um, you know, if I can help, then by all means. 
So uh, the question was centered around the idea that, um, you know, what do you do if you really want to do something? You know, you got a lot of passion about it, but but you don't know a lot about it. Right. Or you're not sure if you know enough to get started. Right. I mean, you know, what do you do? And I get it. But this what, what tends to be behind questions like this is um, fear. Right. Fear of getting it wrong. Fear of being embarrassed because you're not as good as everybody else. And well, no shit. Right. I mean, you're just getting started. I had somebody one time, a uh, family member, as a matter of fact, um, wanted to take classes. And <clears throat> what was I? I don't know. Sixth, seventh degree black belt at the time. And um, they really wanted to train, but they wouldn't. And the reason why they wouldn't was because, well, they were one of my family members. And so they thought that everyone would assume that because they were connected to me, they should already know more and and be, you know, at least a black belt or whatever. And I'm like, the hell, right? So um, it's uh, just weird things get in the way. Some people think that they need to get in shape before they can start. Some people think that they need to yeah, whatever, right? It's not the best time. Everything's got to be in order, whatever, right? Um, but the one of these big fears is that um, they don't know enough, right? And so, you know, people are going to laugh at them, make fun of them, whatever, right? Um, but anyway, the, the, the gist of the question was, what do I do? You know, do you have any advice? I said, yeah, start. Okay. You're not going to know what you don't know. You're not going to know. It's going to sound really weird. You're not going to know how bad you are until you start. Right. We, this came up over the uh, camp weekend as well, where once you start, right, people are worried about, you know, being out of shape. They're worried about not having enough uh, muscle strength in their legs or whatever. And they're not flexible enough, whatever. Um, you know, even if you know you're not. You don't know to what degree. Right. And you're not going to know until you apply effort. Right. So until you actually start doing things. And this this is not just a martial arts thing. This isn't everything. Right. One of the things I learned a long time ago um, from my teachers was regardless of what it is, regardless of what the goal is, right? Um, the goal starts with desire. You want this thing or you want to do it or you want to be with somebody or whatever, right? Um, the next step is not thinking about it and doing a whole bunch of planning and whatnot, because anything that you put in place that way, any thinking, any planning, any anything, right, is going to be flawed, right? Because you're coming at things with a whole bunch of assumptions, right? And no matter how much you read, no matter how many videos you watch, no matter how much surfing of YouTube you do, right? No matter how many techniques you memorize because you watched them on, the, on you know, the, the monitor or whatever, right? It's not going to prepare you for when you actually do it, right? One of the jokes that, that I use, I borrowed from one of my teachers, right? We'd do something. He'd show something. We'd go to do it. And I'm trying to figure it out and everything. He walked by and go, yeah, it looks pretty easy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty easy. However, back at the ranch, right? Um, okay. So 
this is why, and again, we did an episode a long time ago, but to cut to the chase, uh, and I apologize to those of you who were actually on that episode, but maybe it would be a good review. It sounds logical to want to do something and then approach it based on, you know, the fact that you know what you're doing, right? What's pretty cut and dry. Okay. And then I'm going to do things and then I'll have it. Right. Um, but that's not the way it works. And that's why people quit as often as they do or whatever. Um, James was the last episode that we covered the, um, the hierarchy of competency, right? Was it then? Right. So, um, you know, the, the first stage of training, right. If you want to do something, right. The, the, and this is actually the enlightened path, right. Right. From the, from the ancient teachings, right. The enlightened path is you want to do something, start doing it. Okay. Nothing will teach you what you know, what you don't know, and to what extent, and including what you don't, what you don't know, you don't know. Right. I mean, that's one of the jobs of the teacher. Then jumping in and freaking doing it. Right. Because as soon as you do that, then mindfulness kicks in. Right. Then you're going to know what you were right about, what you were wrong about, how weak your muscles are, how inflexible your joints are. What you're going to know depth and degree. Right. A bunch of the stuff that you thought you knew, you can toss out other stuff that you thought you knew. That you're, you can't you're not even close to touching that because it's farther down the line. There are so many things before it that are necessary. Right. Um, but anyway, so uh, just just to answer that question and to um, this is for everybody. Right. If, if there's something you want to do. Right. And you've been waiting or you're trying to figure things out or you're trying to make sure the plan is perfect or whatever. That's according to the ancient masters, that's that's the unenlightened way to do things. Okay, and I know it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds backwards. Right. Why would I not get all my ducks in a row? Because you don't know what fucking ducks you need. You don't know what kind of ducks you need. So you'd be spending a whole lot of time, effort, energy, money, whatever. Just and when I say spending. I also mean spending is wasting, right? Because the amount of time you're not doing the thing is the amount of time that that's extra that you're stacking on top of the pile for how long it's going to take for you to get to that black belt or that fifth degree black belt or that, uh, you know, that business that you want to own or that person you want to be with or that person you want to be, right? All the time you wait, just take that and add it on the time onto the time that it's going to take. Right. So, and the other thing that really just grates at me is people that are like, well, this person or that person in my life, they're going to be upset if I do it or they won't let me or how old are you? Right. Not saying being an asshole, but if you're if you're doing something that is going to make you better, then by default you will automatically become a better fill in the blank, whatever your relationship is to that person who quote unquote won't let you, right? Anybody that that is against you being better and producing better results so that they have a better, easier, 
uh, more comfortable, whatever, life uh, benefits, whatever. What kind of freaking insanity is that? Okay. I'll tell you a story along with that before I get back onto the regular, uh, onto the regular topic, right? Um, uh, been with my wife for 16 years, right? I was married before that a couple of times. Um, but I've always been on this personal development growth path, which is not easy on relationships if choices early on were based on the fear that if you don't attach yourself to this person who likes you, then nobody else will come along and like you. Well, the odds are against that reality. But anyway, um, so I was well into my personal development path to the point where um, those of you who have gone through the life purpose discovery process, right? Um, that was something that I put together after I stopped seeing it as something I should believe in and do my best or try at and actually just flat out apply regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances. That's what I did after a divorce right, from somebody who needed me to comply with a script of her early childhood when she was nine years old. And that's what it came out to be after four marriage counselors and all kinds of personal counseling and all that kind of stuff. I was always asked to leave the, uh, the group counseling. Um, not because I was an asshole, but there was a difference between somebody who had worldly experience and had a broader view of things and someone who had a narrow viewpoint and need for things to be a certain way or they were going to be wrecked. Right. So, but anyway, um, so I go through this divorce and I waited for quite a while. I took, I took a lot of time, right. To be me, to be single, to be non attached, right. Just focused on, right. Doing things. I was focused on my girls, my daughters, um, cause they were the youngest, right got another daughter and, a, and an older son out in the world. Well, they're all in the world now, but, um, but anyway, so um, when I decided that I would get back into the dating scene, um, one of the things that I made sure that came up early on um, around the tell me about yourself question. Okay. Because uh, I'm not one for answering the premarital questions that often come up during the first date or three. Okay, you know, tell me what you tell me about your mom and dad, and how many sisters and brothers do you have, and what do you do for? A, anyway, right. So when the tell me about yourself came up, I would weave in these five must-haves. Right. And there's this exercise. and I'm sure most of you have done this in some form or fashion. Right? It's a huge part of that life purpose discovery process, which I finalized and created as a program after I lived it. Right. After I actually applied it. And here we are. Right. So. Um, but there were these five things that were must haves in my life. Right. And they're not like they're not a big house. They're not a car that nothing. There's no material stuff in there um, unless you count access to teachers 
being material. Okay, so access to teachers because I'm on a constant growth path. Uh, uh, authenticity, right? I have to be free to be myself, right? I'm not walking on eggshells. Okay. Um, oh, what's another one? Uh, some of these things have, have shifted because I'm well into another phase. Um, uh, honesty always, right? If you're going to be pissed off at me, it's going to be my fault. Okay. Not because you took something the wrong way and made something up. Okay. Um, things like that, right? And so I would lay this out and, you know, I would say, so, you know, what do you think? And I actually had people say, women say, nope, that's not okay with me. Okay. And what floored me was, these are the things that make me, me uniquely, right? So if that's not okay with you, then are you implying that I'm going to be a tool and need to comply? But either way, it didn't matter. Because what I said was, oh, okay, thank you. That saves both you and I a whole lot of time, effort, and possible uh, frustration and discomfort. Okay. Um, but I think a lot of people have a problem with that, right? Because because of self-doubt, any number of fears. But again, when it comes to anything, right, martial arts, who knows, going to Japan, whatever, whatever, right? If you want to do it, start. That is the hardest thing for most people. The next hardest thing is sticking with it through that that phase where, because when you start, you're you're in this phase of unconscious competency, right? You don't know what you don't know. You think you know a lot, but you don't know what you don't know. Okay. The next hardest part for people is that phase of conscious incompetency when you start to realize that this is going to be hard. Right? There's a lot that I don't know. Right? Conscious incompetency is, let's say, in the martial arts dojo, right? Teacher demonstrates something, so I know what it's supposed to look like, but I can't make it look like that. Okay? And the struggle is to get through that. That takes the most effort, the most time, the most the most energy, effort, resources, right? But the cool thing is that eventually you'll work it out with enough time and desire and, and, and energy and study and investigation. And just the, sometimes it's just the fucking tenacity. I'm not going to fucking quit. I'm going to do this, right? And it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to do it, right? But you'll hit that level of conscious competency. I know what it's supposed to look like, and I can do that. Now, there's a level above that that's that's really, it, it starts to, the, the herd starts to get thinned out, right? I'm going to start using words that will help us segue over into tonight's topic, but this stuff all matters. Because above conscious competency is a level called unconscious competency. Right. You go from unconscious incompetency and you end up in unconscious competency. What the hell is that? That is knowing it so well and it's so ingrained into you, into your habit patterns, mentally, physically. It's in muscle memory and all that, that you can't not do it. It becomes the new habit pattern. 
right? It's not something you have to think about before you can do it. If you have to think about before you can do it, okay, you know it and you can do it. That's conscious competency. And that's where most people stop. Okay. But here's the thing, right? The unconscious incompetency. There's a lot in there. And most people only look at the skill that they're trying to learn. Okay? And most, <laughs> most people don't define the skill very well. Right? And what I mean by that, and I, I did the same thing for years, right? I'm studying ninjutsu, right? I'm studying ninpo taijutsu. I'm studying sword. I'm studying whatever, right? And I ended up at a seminar. It was a hush-hush secret seminar that somehow got out because ninja can't keep secrets either. So, um, <laughs> but I ended up uh, at a seminar at uh, I had two friends. They were partners in a dojo in Maryland. And I was invited to this. And um, you get there and, uh, well, I can say it now. Hatsumi Sensei is retired. Uh, Shrek Sensei was teaching, right? And he was just, he was in town visiting friends, for those of you on audio only, I'm making air quotes, and he was at the dojo to help make suggestions, but the other teachers were teaching. And for those of you on audio only, I am shaking my head no when I mean, when I say these words. They were teaching, and he was just helping. <laughs> okay? Uh, no, he was teaching, right? So, Everything was kind of lumped into one thing, right? And uh, he had us lined up. He was showing uh, this this kind of a crash and burn, roll recovery kind of thing. He was famous for these things, still is. Um, people don't like them because, you know, it, they're not pretty, okay? Um, and there's this goofy way that you get into them or whatever, but it, it simulates, you know, you were thrown or you were knocked off balance, and you're doing your best to not, fall down and there's this like unconscious stumble at first until you realize or until your conscious mind goes roll stupid right and then you drop into the roll and save yourself so anyway we're doing this rolling we're all lined up in these long lines and stuff and we're rolling across the dojo and i come up out of this roll and i mean we're doing a roll stand up roll stand up whatever and i come up out of this roll and he's standing right in front of me with this big old cheesy smile on his face and if you know shrey sensei when he puts that big smile on his face, he looks like, I don't know, a better way to say this. He looks like the caricature of a Japanese person that often, that you often see, right? He's just this big cheesy smile and whatnot. And he's like in my way and I'm waiting for him to move and he goes, hmm, Jeff-san, I think you're a master of rolling or a master of taihenjutsu. And I, that, that floored me internally because you know, I'm just trying to, quote unquote, do it right. Right. Because there's a there's a senior teacher in the room from Japan. Right. And I, I, I think I tilted my head and I said, really? And he said, hmm, I think so. And then he laughed and he said, well, I hope so anyway. And he walked and he walked away. Right. <laughs> and that threw me off even more. And I just went back to rolling and I just blew it off and, and kept doing my thing. But. I had a, I had a conversation with him later and what I came to realize through these conversations was that I was thinking about things too vaguely, right? 
not that it's a bad thing to want to be a, you know, an expert or a master at ninjutsu or budotaijutsu or whatever phrase you use, whatever term you use, but it's still too damn vague, right? It's too big. It's too broad. How many skills or skill sets are under the umbrella of ninjutsu or nippo taijutsu or budo taijutsu or just taijutsu? How many, how many skills, right? So what I came to realize was that, that that phrase that he used when I came up out of that role, that he thought I was a master of rolling or a master of taijutsu, was that that's the goal. That that hierarchy of competency gets overlaid over every single skill, over every single kamai, over every single strike, over every single kihongata, over every single weapon, over it. Do you understand? Okay. So a master of the umbrella term is an expert or is highly proficient, whatever phrase you want to use, is highly proficient at all the skills under the umbrella. The big thing manifests because of the other things that are put in place. Okay. So, but, okay, this, this unconscious competency, again, people are thinking about the skills. But there's a lot that isn't thought about. Okay? A lot of things that are, are just amiss. They're askew. Okay? And they have nothing to do. They have nothing to do with the skill itself, but they have everything to do with your ability to achieve the goal of mastering the skill. Does that make sense, James? All right, so let's let's look at the topic. Elephant herding. Right? The hell. Right? So anyway, during this past uh fall camp, the very last session that I covered was on how these weapons that we were training on almost the entire weekend, right? Um show up in certain forms as symbolic references to parts of potential energies, engagement, enlightenment, success, whatever, on the mandala, okay? And so uh, for those of you who know these mandala, great. You'll have a little bit of a heads up. For everybody else, you can just kind of, you can just do a Google search, right, on uh, use the images uh, tab to filter through and just so you just see pictures, right? But I'm going to be specifically uh, talking about the Kongo Kai Mandala, right? So Kongo, uh, again, I have to make sure I'm uh, 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 helping out the folks that are on audio only, right? So Kongo, K-O-N-G-O, Kai, K-A-I, right? Kongo Kai Mandala. Um, it's Mandala in English. It's Mandara. And the L is replaced with an R in Japanese because... The Japanese don't have L's. So Japanese can't say fried lice for all the people that like to make fun of oriental people. Uh, anyway, so 
if you're familiar with the Kunglikai Mandala, right, the, it's the one with the nine panels, right? At least the Shingon version of it, okay? The Shingon version has the nine panels, right? And in six out of those nine panels, there's that five circle. It's almost like a, a five circles laid out like a Roman cross kind of positioning, okay? Um, they're laid out a little bit differently in the in the upper left and upper right, and then the middle one at the top just has uh, what looks like one figure in it. Anyway, so that's the model we're talking about, right? In the Tendai, the Tendai school, um, the Kongokai mandala is just the center panel in the Shingon's version, blown up to full size. Uh, and it, long story, it has to do with how each school goes through things. It's the same four areas of training, same four levels or realms of training, but the two schools juxtaposition the Taizokai and the Kongokai Mandala, which one is done first, and then the second one kind of fills in the gaps, right? Uh, in one school, it's one way. In the other school, it's another way, right? So anyway, um, the uh, the center panel in the Kongokai Mandala from the Shingon school, the one most people are probably familiar with, um, around the outer edge, if you look really, really close, okay, there are these circles with an image in it, right? A, a character at the four corners, but then there's one also one in the center between those dots, right? At the cardinal directions. So upper center, right center, left center, bottom center. Okay. Those are the ones I want to, I want to talk about. Okay. Um, I brought these things up during the, um, uh, during the camp. Cause again, uh, the focus is on blades, canes and chains. And so I, I covered blades and canes a different way, but chains a little bit difficult, a little bit different, right? Um, but chains could also be cords, right? Like a lasso, like the, the cord or lasso that, uh, that Fudomio holds in his left hand, right? That's really focuses on, um, well, at least for the beginner focuses on the idea of the, the practice of meditation and binding up our internal our inner demons and, and fears and anxieties and all that shit and getting them out of the way. But it also goes ahead and uh, also represents the binding together of things. Okay. So my reference during uh, camp was that we are all part of a group and we're all uh, connected, right. By this thing needed to Nikyo, whatever. It depends on the context. Um, so, uh, back in the day, uh, Stephen Hayes, uh, the, his newsletter that went out to his students and subscribers and whatnot, in the earliest days, it was called Ninja Realm. But midway, late 80s, early 90s, I think, he changed the name to Musubi, M-U-S-U-B-I, Musubi. Okay? Musubi is, it, it means tying or binding. It implies knots, right? Um, but like, Connecting, it's like connections, okay, binding, right? In in Mikyo, and again, I apologize to the to the audio only folks. You'll have to do a Google search or whatever uh, with these kuji. But there's the outer bonds fist that have the hand, the fingers entwined uh, with each other. Um, outer bonds fist and the inner bonds fist, right? So if you if I turn this around for the folks that are on video, right, that. See how the fingers are all connecting and it's symbolically creating coils, right? So it's a coil of rope, 
right? So things are bound together, right? So that represents um, the connection of those within the Sangha, right? Within the community of practitioners when we talk about Mikyo or uh, the connection between uh, the students in a dojo. And Hatsumi said um, several times in his career uh, when the discussions came up about, you know, uh, he would say that somebody would never have a successful dojo. And they would say, well, he's got like X number of students. And he said, I never said he wouldn't have a successful martial arts academy. What I said was he'd never have a successful dojo. Do you understand the difference? Okay. So, uh, again, maybe for another episode, but, um, these, these, the, the, the circles with the character in it, right? There's a character and you have to look really, really close or have a really blown up version of these things, but they're, they're in human form, right? They're wearing robes and whatnot, but they're each holding an implement. Okay. So, and they all have Vajra before them, right? Or Kongo before them or whatever, right? Um, which means Diamond Thunderbolt. It's Mikyo, right? So the one at the very bottom is holding a quote-unquote Vajra hook, okay? Um, the one to the middle left is holding a Vajra rope, right? Very much like uh, Fudo's uh, rope, right? The one at the top is holding a uh, a Vajra chain, and the one at the right is holding, uh, in Japanese, it's a kane, right? A, a bell, a vajra bell, right? Um, so there's many different ways to look at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of toss one or two things out. But what I really want to do at a certain point is take a look at two, two of them, okay? that can take us back and deeper into that unconscious competency to recognize that we could be the elephant. Okay. So anyway, so hook, rope, chain, bell. What the hell, Sensei? Okay. Well, these symbols, um, remember, this stuff was developed hundreds of years ago. Right. Beginning in ancient India. Okay. And very often the references that we have, the symbolic references, um, all come from like common everyday things that were used as expedients to teach an enlightenment concept. Okay. So elephant herding. Right. Not necessarily herding like you think of as cattle or whatever, but in ancient India, in certain regions, in many regions, clans had elephants. They were the beast of burden. Right. They were the transportation. They were right. They were what you used to get around. Right. Not camels, not horses. Right. Certainly not buggies and cars. Right. Um, but that also means that, you know, there were. um new uh new you know elephant pups being born all the time and whatnot right so but every once in a while an elephant would stray away from camp right and so they'd have to go out and bring it back right because 
you, you need these things. Okay. So very, very quickly, the way this would work is um, the hook, they had this hook, right? It was a kind of a herding tool. It's a hook and they would snag up behind the elephant's ear to get its attention. Okay, you stay off at a safe area because if you spook this thing, it's kind of heavy. You're kind of not, and you're easily breakable right under something that's a couple of tons, right? So they'd get its attention and direct it, and then they'd get a rope around it so they could lead it back to camp, and then they'd put a chain around its leg, stake it into the ground, and then once they had the camp, the you know the elephant back where he belonged, right? stake down, back where, you know, whatever, right? And then they go back to doing whatever they were doing, right? They could celebrate. Hey, elephant's back, whatever, right? And that's the bell being rung. So you see it? Hook, rope, chain, bell, okay? Um, what the hell, right? So this is where things start dropping off, James, because this gets boring, right? We're not even going to get to the lesson yet, okay? But this is the lesson, Okay. Anybody ever been to a circus? Anybody ever been, ever seen a movie or, I don't know, a freaking cartoon, right, with a circus? And the elephant, big old pack of derms, right? You ever wonder? They got this chain wrapped around their leg. And, and sometimes in circuses, it's just a rope, but a chain wrapped around the leg. And it's just connected to a stake that's just driven into the ground. Why does this thing just not walk off? Anybody ever ask that question? Chain's certainly not strong enough. The ground's not strong enough. The stake's not that long. How, how the hell does this work? Well, it starts when the elephant is a pup. Okay? A rope is put around its leg and attached to a stake, driven into the ground, and that rope and that stake are more than enough to keep that pup from going anywhere. Okay? Now, it'll do what every everybody does, what every animal would do, right? It struggles against a little bit, right, for a while. and it, But it comes to the understanding that I can't go anywhere. And it accepts its condition. And then as it grows and the rope isn't enough, then they use a chain. But they also use a chain because at a certain size, the elephant can't feel the rope. It's it's too light, right? So the chain keeps that feeling there, right? So it remembers. And all the way into adulthood, it remembers subconsciously, unconsciously, consciously, it remembers the struggle. It's pointless. Right? So it stops trying. It stops trying to fight against the anchor. Okay? And so this thing that shouldn't work, shouldn't be holding it down. Right? It was something that happened in childhood. And here it is. Fully grown, multi-ton. And now it still believes that that thing around its leg will prevent it from going anywhere.
that anchor is still just as effective. Okay. I'm going to come back to that. Some of you are probably already slipping into that, but let's come back to that. Okay. Um, because it's not just that, right? Okay. There's again on the mandala, these symbols point to positive things, negative things to be overcome, positive actual processes, right? So this is, there's a process here too. Okay. So let's take a look at how you got involved in martial arts or self-defense or whatever you're doing. Anything that you're doing, you can look at this. Okay. So the hook represents that which got your attention. Okay. It attracted your attention. Okay. Um, if I were to, I, and I did this during camp, right? If I were to hold up a pen or a pencil, do I have one close by here? I have chopsticks, right? I hold up chopsticks, right? Okay. If that's not something that that um, that means anything to you, okay, or you haven't been looking for anything like that or whatever, right? Chances are you're going to ignore the guy holding up the chopsticks, or you might give us a, a quick glance like, "What the hell?" Okay, this happens when you're watching uh, commercials. You ever, you ever watched a commercial? It pops up and you go, "Jesus Christ!" They'll sell anything the hell who would buy that huh you ever have that thought i bet you can even think of a, a couple of products now that just are just seriously that's retarded okay well you know what they're not talking to you because that's not even in your in, in your realm meanwhile there's a whole bunch of other people that are like well i'll explain what they're like you ever watch a commercial that as soon as you saw it you said, now that's cool. I could really use that. Yeah. They're doing that when you think it's stupid. When you think that's the coolest thing since Swiss cheese, they think it's stupid. Okay. It all has to do with proclivities or interests or already that, that already preclude that, right? That already come before it. Okay. But if I hold these up, right? And it's something that kind of catches your interest, right? Then there's going to be this, this question like, oh, that's cool. How do I get to, how do I get those? Okay. Right. How do I get, how do I get a pair? Where'd you get those? How do I get those or whatever? Right. And then there's this process of leading you logically through the thinking process as to how to get it, how it will benefit you. Is this something that you're willing to put time, effort, money, attention, whatever, more, more work into, whatever, right? That's the rope. Okay. So there's this, there's this lead. There's a guy line, right? Called a leash, call it whatever, right? Where I have to follow this. I have to follow the breadcrumbs. I have to, f I'll pull on the rope, right? They don't need to pull me because I need to figure out where this goes. And then there's this point where I decide to jump in, right? And just do it, okay? So in the beginning of your martial arts journey, something got your attention. And 
you did research, you, you know, started asking questions, or you just listened to somebody teach or talk or whatever. You went to a seminar, you went to a class, okay, tried it out for a while, okay, and then thought, this is cool, okay? But so you did it, but there came a point where you couldn't quit anymore. And it wasn't because you couldn't quit because you were under contract or you had some agreement that you signed or whatever. You couldn't quit because it was so much a part of who you are that you can't not do it. And I don't care if you switch styles 15 times. I don't, I don't care, right? It's not about that. Okay. You went from taking martial arts classes or buying martial arts videos and books and reading and trying things out or whatever to becoming a martial artist where you applied the label to yourself. I am a martial artist. Okay. In the beginning, if you tried that and you might use it, right? But it felt funny. I'm a martial artist, but your mind would always snap to, you don't look anything like those other people that have been around for a while, right? You're still trying to figure it out. Where the hell do I put my foot? But at a certain point, okay, and then you started producing benefits. Not about winning fights, maybe, right? But your mind calmed down. Confidence went up. Discipline went up. You became more respectful or even more respectful than you were in the very beginning, right? There's the bell, right? These benefits, right? Look at what you can do, okay? So there's this process, right? It's a pretty interesting thing, right? 1,600, over 2,500 years ago, there were these reference points, and human beings are pretty much the same. We may dress differently. We may speak a different language. We may use different analogies. We may have a hard time understanding the original ancient analogy, but it's the same process. Okay. So uh, before I double back and close a loop that I left open, any questions, comments, or complaints, James? Anybody? Come on. There you go. Take over. As of right now, all I see is Dave Fletch says, good evening. It's October. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a geek. Anyway. (laughs) Ah, shit. We started out laughing. Might as well keep going. Okay. So, no other questions? Should we give them a minute? No? Nothing? Nothing. Nothing. Well, shit. See, now, now I'm starting to think ahead for the for the uh, the Christmas specials. Okay? You remember when we were young and we watched all those Christmas specials like mm-hmm. Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer and stuff like that and that one uh, thing where he ran away and met uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Klondike Cornelia or Cornelia, whatever, what the hell was his name? Um, Yukon Cornelius, right? right. He was uh, prospecting for gold, uh, you know, and he'd always like 
hit things with his pick and then lick it and go, nah, nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's what we got. I just need a pick now that I can nothing. <laughs> That's not funny, right? We just lost two people because we got stupid. Anyway, all right. So, um, all right. So let's go back to this connection between unconscious incompetency and this process. What kinds of things grabbed us, snagged us, there's that hook, snagged us and tied us down when we were a young pup or maybe not so young pup and then we allowed it to become the thing that held us down that now we either can't feel it consciously doesn't really matter but it's still holding us down. We're absolutely at this point in our lives capable of walking away from that thing and not being held down by it, not being anchored, not being pinned down, but we're like the elephant. We were conditioned how long ago to believe that this thing was true when it's not. It was true then, just like for the little, just like for the elephant pup. That rope and that stake was more than enough to hold it in place. So no matter how much it struggled, it wasn't going anywhere. Right? But right? it grew to a point where, <laughs> like, it could, it just like moving a leg, just taking a step with that leg, would have pulled the stake out of the ground. Right. Yeah, but it's still there, right? The chain's still around its its ankle. Yeah, of course it is. Okay? The experience isn't going away. But right? and this is where words are going to start to fail. Do you get where this is going? How many things do we believe to be true for us? I ask myself this all the time. Right? We have ritual meditations for this. Right? How many things do we believe to be true for us and about us that are attached to our name, our form, right? Whether it's age, size, skin color, whatever, right? Um, or the formless part, which is things like, I don't know, religious beliefs and education and family lineage and all those kind of things, right? Um, what do we believe to be true? And especially what do we believe to be true that holds us down, right? I can't possibly do that. I can't possibly, right? They won't let me. Well, here's, not only is that one of the things that bothered me the, a lot about relationships, right? They won't let me. Do they ask your permission when they're going to go do something? If the answer is no, then somebody's not living in a mutually beneficial relationship. Okay? 
but that aside, um, what's funny, not really, it's not funny. It's, it's quite aggravating. Someone who says they won't let me and therefore doesn't act. Who is really holding that person down? The person who won't let them or the person who's decided that somebody else has ultimate control over their life. This is either beneficial and it's empowering or it's not. Because as far as I'm concerned, somebody who says they won't let me and doesn't find a way to negotiate, figure it out, make some changes, have a discussion, whatever it is, needs these empowering lessons more than almost anybody else. Because when they say somebody won't let me and then they go into a state of inactivity and they don't act in that direction because, quote unquote, they're not allowed, but they're not a child. They're not allowed. They're not a slave. They're not a child. They're not an indentured servant, whatever. Okay. They're they're admitting powerlessness. And I know this is not fashionable speech. I get it. Okay. But if we wanted to be like everybody else, we wouldn't be trying to learn this stuff. And if we were only worried about punches and stabs and gunshots and throws, things like that, we wouldn't be studying this stuff. You wouldn't be showing up for Kuden. How often do I talk about physical skills on Kuden? Seriously. Or physical skill strategies. All this stuff can be converted to physical skill strategy. Right? Because there's lots of things that we believe are possible or not possible in a fight. If you don't, if you need some examples, look at the damn comments in my videos, right? That won't work. That's not possible. You can't do that shit, whatever, right? Uh, somebody just posted, I can't believe people are still trying to learn this fake Bujinkan, whatever, right? And meanwhile, the guy's profile picture is of some cheesy, cheesy ninja guy with a, with a hood and a mask and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think he has a star in his hand too, but. Okay. So the games that ego plays, right? And again, please don't think that I'm like, um, you know, I've got all this stuff wrapped up because I'm battling the dragons of ignorance and desire all the time. Okay? And one of the reasons or one of the ways that I keep this stuff top of mind and um, well, if you, if you, could just deconstruct the subjects, the lessons or whatever in these kuden. Um, sometimes it's the, the topics are things that I think that people really need. Okay. And sometimes the topics are things that I think people really need, but I need a booster shot. Okay. One of the reasons I'm doing the seven, the first seven steps on the path of a Buddha course for people is not just because a bunch of people want to train in Mikyo, and that's a prerequisite to doing that with me. So I need a booster shot. Because when I teach those lessons, I hear my teacher talking to me. That's me since I used to mention that. When he would teach a lesson, or he would read stuff, or go back over the notes with his teacher or whatever, he could hear Takamasa Sensei's voice. 
Interesting. <clears throat> so therein lies the crux of things. I know this wasn't very long or whatever. And um, the jump from ancient Indian <laughs> elephant herding, right? But here's this little crux, this little thing, right? How do you train an elephant to be held down by a small stake and a small piece of chain when this multi-ton behemoth could simply take a step with the chained leg and literally walk away. How do you do it? You condition them. When they're too small to fight the stake and the tie down. This isn't just things that happened in childhood. Huh? Groups of friends, condition us. Influential teachers, condition us. Positive and negative role models, condition us. Either directly or indirectly. Huh? Wanting to be just like them when we were young, dumb, right? And not really understanding that, well, he's getting what he wants, but he's a damn bully to do it. And then here we are, mimicking, mimicking the same things. Okay. Um, I've had to drop lots of role models in my life. My uncle was the dad I never had because my stepdad was an abusive ass. My uncle taught me how to fish, taught me all kinds of things, right? I mean, literally bought the stuff, took me out in the yard, put a hula hoop, one of my sister's hula hoops down at the end of the yard, right? And said, I'm not taking you fishing until you can cast this stink sinker, no hook, no bait, whatever, into that circle nine out of 10 times consistently. Okay. I'll sit here and watch. And then he would correct things and all that, right? He taught me many different things, right? I modeled uh, humor and how to tell jokes and make people laugh and whatnot off of him, right? He was my uncle Frank. But there were th that that served its purpose until I realized that he was a philanderer and cheated on my aunt on a regular basis. Okay, so that had to change. So he was a role model, but in certain areas. But how many times have we accepted somebody as a role model, and then we either didn't know any better, or needed an anchor? And then just, okay, and now it's set. I don't know. I don't know your context. I'm still trying to figure these things out for myself. Every once in a while I have that, like, it'll break through. It'll just bubble to the surface. And I'll realize, holy shit, I just, and then I can follow that down and try to ferret it out. Because this process Regardless of whether you call it Nintetsu, Mikyo, whatever, this is a process of recreation. Right. We created ourselves accidentally for the most part, right? But we were, you know, molded and whatever. We accepted certain things. Anyway, along the way, right? So the idea of rebirth on this side is not, you know, we got anointed with water or anything like that, but we are making a conscious decision to become the kind of person and to have the kind of power and whatnot 
Um, but some of us, right? But one of the ways to find out where that the rope is still there or the chain is still there is to think about something that you really want to do or go beyond what your current definition is and see what that feels like. See what kind of emotions that brings up or see how quickly your ego makes you look at something else and you get distracted. Uh, you can't feel the rope, you can't feel the chain, but you can feel the tug. Okay. But the reality is, you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Okay. But we've got chains and ropes that are wrapped around, um, I'm not in that class of people, I'm not that kind of person, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time, people like me can't do that, or usually we depersonalize, right? People like us can't do that, right? Um, I bet there's at least five things that you do right now in your life that most people don't do, that most people can't do. So guess what? To them, you're one of those people. Okay. So anyway, um, not that long of a conversation tonight, but I, I wanted to share that from from camp because it came up and um, I, it came up incidentally because of the lesson. But I thought this was something that shouldn't just be limited to people that uh, were at camp or they got the videos or whatever, right? If you did pre-order the videos, James will be working on those things this week, I'm assuming, because um, they're all uploaded. They just needs to, but this is the first camp in forever that we used a multi-camera system and a studio-like thing to keep changing angles and, and whatnot. So there's a little bit of extra um, editing at the front of all these things that he has to do. So, but anyway, um, but I wanted to make sure that also, while this was still top of mind for me, that I thought it was worth putting out. James, you were at camp, right? Um, anything you want to throw on top of this? What, what kind of came up for you when when we were doing that lesson? No, for me, it's just that <clears throat> it went back to, uh, I think I said it during camp, that we had a in a couple of weeks to a month ago where we covered anchoring bias and it oh, yeah. sort of tagged right along into the literal anchoring, like the stake in the chain idea. And uh, well, you yeah. know, that, that is you putting the chain around your leg and mm. sticking the, the, the right. spike in. Right. Um, most people, everybody, everybody's heard of conscious bias or, you know, uh, unconscious bias because of all these social agenda things and whatnot. I'm not saying they're there or they're not there, but people like to rub salt in wounds or create a wound where one didn't exist. Right. Um, but very few people know about this idea of anchoring bias, where the first thing that you encounter, whether whether somebody taught it to you, you bumped into it, you translated it the best way you could, or you just came up with this expedient belief and then it becomes this this 
concrete block. It just becomes that everything else gets gauged and based on that initial thing, right? You know, my first teacher taught me this and then everything else, right? That I, everything else I do in my life, every other martial art, everything I'm always looking for. We mentioned, you mentioned that yesterday, I think, um, was it yesterday? Um, where somebody had contacted me and really wanted to train and, um, wanted to do some ranking, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But then they looked into the belt color system that we use for the modules. Right. right? And their question was, since when does the Bujinkan have a, have an orange belt? Um, the Bujinkans never had any belts other than black belt until these other things were created by Westerners that then became kind of an expedient. Oh, that's a good idea because from the earliest days, everybody wore a black uniform so everybody wore a black belt. And if you didn't wear a black uniform, you were brand new and you wore a white uniform and a white belt. And then you wore a black uniform with a black belt, but your rank wasn't the belt. The rank was the patch system that went on the uniform that was a certain color combination and stars. But this person, but everybody does it, right? The way they were introduced to it, okay? Like at the school. We have had a hell of a time in the in recent years doing membership drives, even as a contest, because most people believe that the way they got involved with the training is the way everybody gets involved with the training. So if they saw a flyer and they made a phone call, that's how they assume that everybody did it. If they saw something about a seminar, they came in on a buddy day kind of thing they're more likely to refer somebody else than the guy who came in on a flyer or saw a facebook ad or whatever because and we don't most people don't even know that that's what they're doing they don't even know that they they don't participate in things like that because right of this unconscious association right most people I've been around in this art since 1980, which means there's people that, that have been around since 75 because that's when Stephen Hayes first brought the stuff back. Then he went back to Japan for that longer period and then came back in 80-ish, 79, 80, something like that. And then I got involved in 80, uh, more formally in 81, and then just, you know, kept going, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so I have watched, like from the time Hatsumi Sissari started teaching, right, there were these certain phases. They were five-year cycles, right? We literally went through the Shuhari, and then it kind of expanded out from there, right, across these things. And he made changes along the way to make it, how do I say this nicely? I won't. To make it more comfortable and acceptable to more people. Because he always said it was like, uh, it was like panning for gold. You get as much mud, rocks, and junk in the pan and the screen, and you run the process. And if you're lucky, after it's all said and done, you may have a couple of flecks or a couple of actual nuggets of gold, right? But you got to run a bunch through it. Now, that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear. But there's also a subconscious concern that they're not one of the nuggets. Okay. Um, but there, I, I watched 
all these changes, right? There was a there was a year was it eighty six, something like that, right? It was one one of those. It was mid to late eighties. He made a public announcement, right? I mean, when I first got started, the highest rank in the Bujinkan was was fifth on, and at fifth on you could uh, establish your own network, your own organization, right? You were a shidoshi, right? And so you could do this thing, right? And then we had a shit ton of shidoshi. So five more ranks were added. Okay. And Shihan was a concept. Purely Japanese. I mean, it's, it's, it was based on and around the way the Japanese normally use the term Shihan. And then along come a shit ton of Westerners who saw uh, Manaka uh, Shihan and, you know, whatever, right? And so, oh, at eighth dawn, then you become a Shihan. You're not a Shidoshi anymore. And, you know, no, there was no freaking piece of paper that said you were a Shihan. Shihan is an honorific, right? I mean, colloquially, it means master within the martial arts, but that's not what the kanji paint a picture of. Right. The kanji for Shihan, the kanji for role model. How comfortable would you be walking up to say somebody saying, hi, I'm role model Miller. Right? There's a whole shit ton of, of implications in that. Right. But what I saw along the way, because I've been around for so long, for good or bad. Is this anchoring bias. Happening because. As people got on board, right? Hatsumi Sensei kept following the seniors and adapt, you know, teaching lessons as we grew, right? But if you were a beginner that jumped on at a certain point and you went to train with Hatsumi Sensei or some of the master uh, uh, teachers and or some, a bunch of these people that go to Japan and would come back and just teach what they were learning in Japan and not be covering significant or, or, or uh, properly the basics and stuff like that, that they were supposed to be covering. Right. Well, then that person's assumption is that what the art looked like when they got on board is the way it's always been, been done. Right. And then you got all this freaking uh, all this arguing and, and backstabbing and bullshit going on, all this infighting, you know, that, you know, this is the way it is. And then this is the way it's, you know, this is the way it's always been. And, right. I think did this come up over um, over camp where I, I was talking about tradition and I said, you know, how many people would freak out if they found out that certain historical or traditions started with Takamatsu Sensei? Right. Like there was no grouping of certain clumps of things right Bef before a certain point in the training. And like in the early in the late 70s, early 80s. There was no collection of Kionopo as people know it now. And that whole concept came out of the Gyoko to you. If you go look at the Gyoko to you specifically, right, you've got the Sanden Kamai, but you've got six models. Ichimonji, Jumonji, and Hicho. Actually, Jum, Ichimonji, Hicho, Jumonji in that order, but left and right. And they look different, right? And then the Torite Gata, there's 10 models. Right. At least 10 models. Right. So it's not eight things. It's not eight techniques. But right, these things became expedience. They became things. 
right? I remember way back in the very early 80s, um, there was this one Japanese instructor, um, Muromatsu, I think it was Muromatsu, um, really skinny, really rough looking guy, been training for a long time and was really freaking good. Um, he was, um, he was asked to fill in, not, not fill in for a class, but like the, the head instructor was stepping out and here, you know, whatever. Right. And, um, do this, right. Teach it. I think it was like Mushadori or whatever. Right. Teach, uh, teach Mushadori. And he's like, what the hell is that? Right. Oh, it's, it's this technique. Right. Oh, well, shit. I didn't even know that had a name. Right. Because like, if you looked at all my notes in the early, early days, there was no focus on kata, right? What I have is Ichimonji defense versus uh, stomach stab or uh, double slash to the face or, or throat or whatever, because, right? But a lot of these things were grouped um, when Hatsumi Sensei originally got all this stuff from Takamatsu Sensei, but he didn't, he didn't have soke ship. Right. He didn't have any of that stuff. And he was teaching his group of students. And before Bujin, well, not before Bujin Khan, his dojo's name was Bujin Khan, Hall of the Divine Warrior. Right. Now it's turned into an organization. But his system wasn't Togakure, Gyoko, Koto. He was learning these things, but his system was the Hatsumi Ha. Right. Here's a collection of all the stuff that I have and that we're going to work through. And here's how I'm teaching it. Right. Hatsumiha. Interesting. Okay. But along with anchoring bias, you also have um, ignorance of history. Right. Even even the most recent history. But it's OK. Because people are going to do what they people are going to do what they're going to do. I mean, human beings are always going to be human beings, right? Um, and I certainly don't have all the lessons. I don't have all the details or whatever. I'm doing the best I can with what I have. Um, I produce results with this stuff in the real world, and so that's what gets passed on to my students, right? And other people are going to have different stories, and other people are going to have different perspectives because they were in classes that I wasn't. I try to catch up on as much stuff as possible, but the reality is just Hatsumi since I said this in a class one time, he was talking about, uh, Nijisu and, you know, the ninja operating in, in, you know, the, the old days and the original days and stuff. And he said, you know, um, I teach this, right? Because this is what I have based on my research, based on my understanding and based on what I got from my teacher. But here's the truth. I don't know for sure. I wasn't there. What I do know is that I have learned this. I have applied this. And it works this way. But see, that runs contrary to, to ego as well, right? Because ego needs to know the one way. Hmm, interesting. I don't think the universe has one way. I don't even think there's a best of anything. 
Right. Anyway, anyway. Um, so what else did you pull out of that? I, I know a couple of other people had mentioned some things, um, but what was your big aha moment when it came to, well, any of the symbols uh, in general, but this process and these symbols, um, whether it was the elephant analogy or not? Uh, I think it was like that elephant analogy thing that there's uh, things like there's there's uh, the stake and chain thing that's holding some things in place. And for me, it, that's where it connected that anchoring thing, whether it was there from something else that happened or whether I stuck that stake in the ground at some point myself and basically forgot that it's there kind of thing. Sure. I hit that point where it it was there, and then you for, you just forget about it and just assume like the elephant that that's as far as you're gonna get, or and you and you quit like pulling on it kind of thing, and so you don't. Think or you don't even try. Right. Yeah. You just make that initial assumption that it's not gonna work out anyway. Hmm. Right. That came up a couple of times, and the the um, let's see, did we did we have anybody from Friday night all the way through Sunday who was not a black belt. No. This was the first camp in the history of our camps where everyone who showed up mm-hmm. was showed on or higher. That was pretty interesting. Okay. But the other thing that was interesting was that for more than one person, more than once throughout the weekend when people were discussing this kind of topic, whether it came out of uh, how they were executing on kata or whatever, what surprised me the most was one of the most common things that arose for people at that level was admitting how much self-doubt they had that was getting in the way. And what's really interesting is the amount of success and the amount of uh, skill, skill proficiency, knowledge that all of these people have in the world. And they still can't see it. I have a friend who used to weigh a lot. They used to weigh almost 400 pounds before I met them. And they went through massive weight loss. And I think right now they're riding around, I don't know, 175, something like that. It's pretty freaking awesome, right? But ever since I've known them and people point out, you know, how good they look, they look good in that outfit, they look at whatever, right? Their number one response, I mean, they'll kind of blow it off and, and it can seem like they're being humble, but in private conversations, what they tell me is, I don't see what you see. When I look in the mirror, I still see the fat person. Even though their body doesn't look anything like that. Right? They can't not see that. That's got to be a heavy anchor. But I think we all have things like that. What can't we not see? What can't we look at because we're afraid that... Some people are afraid that... They're still what they fear being. 
And some people are afraid of that success because even though they want it, I don't think that they know or that, that they're, they doubt that they're going to be able to hold on to it. They doubt that, you know, others are going to let them, right? Kind of like that, that uh, spouse thing, right? They won't let me, right? So maybe it's not your spouse. Who do you believe won't let you get to a certain point? You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. um, until we ferret out and move things out of, um, sometimes I've done that circle with the pie piece and stuff. I talk about the realm of the unknown, unknown and all that kind of stuff. That's still unconscious competency or unconscious incompetency, right? But until we can bring this stuff to light and become conscious of it, whether it's a positive or a negative, we can't do anything about it. Right. But it's scary looking into the darkness. It's scary looking at things we've told ego that we never want to look at again and to protect us from it. That is what we've done, whether it was trauma, whether it was a mistake, an accident, whatever. Okay, we didn't look at ego and say, ego, what I want for you to do is. We didn't do that, but either spoken or unspoken, right? We made a decree. I never want to go through that again. I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm not going to be that kind of person. I'm not. When all we had was one little perspective and one glimpse. Interesting stuff. I think. Anyway, any other questions or comments pop up? While I was just just dragging on, just droning on. <clears throat> uh, Dave Fletch says, seems like a good example of some of our society's major problems. All that needs to happen to fix them is for people to step forward. You guys ever watch the movie The Matrix? You know the part where he gets jacked into the into the thing for training and all that, and they put him in. Uh, uh, the the program with the woman with the red dress, you know, that, you know that part in there, right? And he uh, she walks by and gives him that look, and then he turns around, and it's an agent with a gun in his face, right? Do you remember Morpheus's lesson? Because I I was I was transfixed through that first movie. I think they screwed up two and three. They did their best, but. The Wachowski, well, they were brothers then. Now, apparently, they're sisters, whatever. Um, They had moved the production so far away from from California, it wasn't even funny. So it was impossible or really, really difficult for lazy executives to be checking in on them. So uh, the first movie was the truest to the four books, um, the the, the essence and the, the principles and concepts within the four books that Keanu Reeves had to read before he could even look at the script, right? One of them was the Tao of physics and there was uh, all kinds of stuff, right? But anyway, um, that, that lesson, right? Morpheus said that not only could anybody be an agent, right? But some people are so intensely or hopelessly dependent upon the system that they would kill 
to keep it in place. So while if all we need is for people to step up, there will be 10 or 100 more counterbalancing them because they need for things to stay in place. I'll give you a quick for instance. What if income tax became not a thing tomorrow? What if the fact that it's been mistranslated for decades, the reason why your name on uh, tax documents is in capital letters, all capital letters, was to force you out of a uh, uh, Title C into a uh, Title A. Is it it's C and yeah A, right? So A is corporate tax. C is individual tax. Okay, C is voluntary. A is not. The way the tax code is written, business names are to be in all capital names, all capital letters. Individuals are to be first letter capital, the rest lowercase. We'll not dig into that, shall we? Okay. But what if there was this huge push? Hey, no, this is not. This needs to go away. How many people's livelihood is dependent on the tax code being exactly what it is? And how many of them would fight to keep it in place? Tax preparers, registered agents, People who work for the IRS, I'm just talking about here in the States, but it, this would be across the board in any country. How many people's livelihood, safety and security is dependent on that system remaining exactly the way it is? People like to say, follow the money. Well, that's a good start, but they, they're talking about just following it to the rich people. No, no, no. No, no, no. Okay. What systems are you so dependent upon that if it was threatened to go away, you would kill for it? This is not an easy black and white thing. The ropes and chains and stakes are real. Sometimes you find out that it's there but you can make it serve you because you can't make it go away. But how many can you walk away from? This goes right back to the four right efforts that we covered in the Sanjay Shichi Goldbaum program, 37 fundamentals, right? Increasing the positive or generating more positive, increasing the positive that's already in existence, reducing and or eliminating as much of the negative that you can reduce or eliminate and then preventing other negative from coming in board. But let's ignore the first, the first two at the extremes, adding more and reducing or adding more and preventing. Right. And let's strip away the increasing the amount of positive. You can increase the amount of positive by just concentrating on the reducing and eliminating the negative that it's not, it's not necessary. Okay. But how much of that do we believe 
is either necessary or how much have we just rolled over and accepted that there's nothing I can do about it. This is just the way things are. This freedom that I'm pointing at is a major, major part of the mindset for a ninja. The samurai is the one that adheres strictly to things because that's the way it's done. Not that the ninja doesn't have certain things like that, but to be flexible, to be adaptable. Right. That's why one of the analogies is that we walk the edge of a sword. Right. Positive on one side, negative on the other. But it's a constant balance. But there's also the ability, knowledge of when it's appropriate and how to go about operating in that realm to be able to step off to either side to do what needs to be done. And then you're back on the edge. Anyway, anything else? Uh, Jeffrey Fletcher said, definitely looking forward to the camp videos. Sadly, my work schedule prevented me from attending virtually. I know. I know. If if you don't show up for things, I know it had to be work. And I know that you probably ground your molars down a little bit farther. (laughs) I would. (laughs) Uh, I've got people that are just, uh, if, if it wouldn't be for work, they'd be in class all the time. So, and I, if I didn't run the show, I'm not sure that I would make it to class with my busy schedule. But yeah, I would, because throughout my lifetime, I have been offered some really sweet fucking deals, but it was going to interfere with my ability to get to regularly scheduled yearly things to be with my teachers. And that was non-negotiable. But how many people assume that, no, 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 your priorities need to be over here. That you can always do. Yeah, no. That I had to do, put all my eggs in one basket, get that as quickly as possible so that I could be more effective in all these other realms. Here's a chain or a rope and a stake for you. How was this worded? Uh, there's just certain things you have to do in the world, right? You can't get out of it. You get a job, you do these things, whatever, right? And people do that. And then they accept all those responsibilities. I'm married, man. You know, I, I can't do all these things. I get it. Stop trying to do all those things. Right. Here's another one. Stop thinking about yourself. Right? Be more considerate of everyone else. Right? Be more mindful of everybody else. Well, I mean, that's a nice thing. I mean, why would you not do that? Right? Well, because I'm prioritizing everybody else and I'm not developing myself to the degree or to the speed at which I can do it. One teacher told me once, I know you were taught to not be greedy when you were growing up. I'm telling you to be greedy. When it comes to this stuff, 
You'd be as greedy as hell. You were taught not to be selfish growing up. I'm telling you to be as selfish as hell. When it comes to yourself and getting this stuff, you'd be as selfish as you can be. Because when you get this, right, you're working to make yourself better. While it looks like it's all about you, what people miss is that the better you make yourself, the better you make James, Jeffrey, Dave, whatever. The better you make yourself, simultaneously you make yourself the best father, husband, friend, employee, employer, whatever. Fill in the blanks that you can possibly be. So what looks like selfish, this is where Nikio makes this distinction. What looks like selfishness is actually compassion for all beings. Because you will always be who you are when they encounter you. The question is, is what is that thing that they're encountering? And what kind of abilities do you have to help? The ropes and chains run deep. Okay? This is not about not being selfish. This is not about not being greedy. Because there's negative greed, there's negative selfishness. But if your perspective, I'm not going to tell you what your perspective should be. My perspective is if I make myself as powerful as I can be, as skilled as I can be, all these things, the best version of me. This is not just about Jeff, Daishihan Miller, whatever freaking term we're going to use. I make myself the best because no one operates in a vacuum. What do they say? No man is an island, whatever, right? You are always in a relationship somehow. Even if it's with a stranger, you pass on the street for a momentary blip in time. The clerk at the store during the transaction, you exchange a couple of words, whatever. Okay. So the, whatever you do with yourself, you do to all human beings. You do the, to the universe. Because you're in constant, you're not separating yourself from it. You're in it, right? There's a constant relationship. So whatever degree, whatever stopgap you've put in place, okay, you've told the universe, this is as good as you get from me. I know you didn't use those words and I know it wasn't conscious, but it doesn't make any less true. That's something that I accept. That's something that I've, that I, I believe in my soul. Although I don't buy the unchanging soul theory. <laughs> that doesn't say I don't have one. Just it's not what most people think. Anyway, so um, give it some thought. And if it's too much, I understand if this will be the last time that 
we engage with each other. That's the risk that every teacher takes every time they teach a lesson. Because we're all free to choose. The question is, is do we, one, do we know what kind of choices we have? Two, do we know how powerful that power to choose really is? Or do we know how stifled, how much we've stifled that that power? I don't know. I don't know your context. I can only know my own, and I'm probably still just scratching the surface on that, too. Anyway, James, you have anything else to throw on top of this? No. No. Damn me. Any Anybody else? Questions, comments, complaints? Topics for next time? Oh, Dave just said it's the slave trade. Of course it is. But we sell ourselves into servitude. That was in the Matrix, too. You were born into it. Right? You have a red pill, blue pill moment all the time. Is that it? Is that all we got? Yeah. See, I probably put people to sleep again. They probably show up. I'm the replacement for Salmonex or something like that. <laughs> all right. So our next big event, uh, let's see. Our next big event is in January. What is that? The 5th, 6th, and 7th? Double check my calendar here. Yes. Yes. Anyway, 5th, 6th, and 7th is our yearly dicomiosi. Um, uh, we do it as a New Year's kickoff thing. I know within the Bujinkan, dicomiosi is uh, typically in December, but everybody and their brother does it in December. Unfortunately, in the West, that is right in the middle of holiday season. And now with hundreds of thousands of people doing the, the art and how many hundreds of teachers that are out there, whatnot and everybody tries to do dicomiosi on the same freaking weekend and then they all complain because there's only a few people showing up well we moved ours so um, it became our new year's kickoff yes pun intended uh, seminar and so uh, i'll start having information coming out about that um soon and uh well we have the dates right and is is that already set up on the events page on OnlineNinjaAcademy.com? I believe so. I think people can register for it. I don't think I have a topic or a theme, a weekend theme uh, planned yet. Right. Okay. So that, that I'll have to, that, that'll be the thing that I wire in. Um, but we'd love to have you come in, train, um, you know, if, uh, if you're one of the folks that are uh, really close to me and I have some sense of what your skill set is, or we can talk about what your skill set is, uh, there are four, um, breakout session uh, spots currently uh, available on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And I'd like to have other instructors teach certain things. So it kind of broadens things out. Um, but if we have a really, really big turnout for this one, then there may be six or eight breakout uh, slots. 
because I would double book breakouts. We have two two classrooms in my dojo. So uh, we would double book breakouts. And then what my goal is to get things back to being big enough that when students come to an event, they can't possibly do everything. They are forced to be ninja and tailor their training to their needs. Or you can do what I did when my teacher did this stuff and I would take a group of students and then everybody would go to different breakouts and then we would pull our notes together so that we didn't miss anything because that's what ninja do. Okay. Uh, there's that also our foundations of ninja self-defense uh, course. We've been reshooting everything and, and running people through this module one course. Um, it's uh, nearing its end. We're in week 13 out of 16 weeks. Um, we just entered into that. So information will be coming out for module two, uh, which is our uh, ninja realm of the strategist, the tactician. Um, there's probably another cool name that I have to it or whatever, but that's going to be out and it's going to focus on these uh, bladed profiled uh, Kamai uh, Sagan, uh, what do we have? Sagan, Ichimonji, and Doko, right, across the three primary striking lineages, uh, Gyakute, all that kind of stuff. Um, of course, anybody that's currently in Foundations program, uh, if you want to just upgrade into the full program and then just move through it, uh, that's what the Platinum program is all about. You can just um, do... You know, well, James, you were in that for a while, but now you're doing something different. Uh, but we've got people all around the world uh, that are just in that, and then they have access to all kinds of extra training as well. Um, or you can just do it like you've been doing it a la carte. You just do Module 1, then Module 2. But you don't, you don't have to have done Module 1 to do Module 2. Um, what you may find is if you move down farther or whatever and skipping over things, some of these things do rely on skills that I teach pre earlier. And here's the other thing to know. I don't just take a bunch of things and put them in a box and go, that's for that rank. And I put stuff in a box and I go, that's for that rank. The way a lot of martial arts operate, um, this stuff is all foundational, right? And so um, just like the Sanshin, uh, Suno Kata uh, kind of requires that you know Chino Kata, to be able to do it well, because Chino Kata is in Suino Kata several different ways. Right? Kano Kata, same thing. Funo Kata, each one kind of has the things below it in it, which makes them better and better and better, right? And then you get to Kuno Kata, which is your introduction to Kyojutsu Tenkan until second or third transmission of the same thing where we realize that shit, Kyojutsu Tenkan was in everything. But what do I know? All right. Um, so hopefully you guys will be able to make it for some of this stuff. That'd be that'd be really cool, right? Um, just uh, love to get back to having enough people at a camp where uh, we can have our Saturday evening stealth uh, training exercise again. That'd be cool, right? But again, you know, everybody everybody got more ropes and more chains and more uh, poles in the ground. Um, just how conditioned did we get from COVID while complaining about it? How conditioned did we get by the quote unquote nor new normal? What has become our new normal? Interesting. Okay. All right. Anything else? Any, any last minute questions or comments?
No, sir. Nope. All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to wrap this up. I will talk to everybody again next time on Kuden. Get more of Kuden Radio. Subscribe through your favorite podcasting site or join our clan of serious modern warriors at OnlineNinjaAcademy.com.